I get to talk today about our last core value, which in my head was on this side, but it's not, so I'm going to have to point over here, extravagant love. And so I've been thinking about this word a lot, probably too much. I've said the word extravagant more times than I've ever said in my life as I've been, I mean, who really uses that word, right? Extravagant. So I was trying to figure out what that meant. So clearly I looked at extravagant love, and the first thing I see is that beginning part, which is extra. And then if you are a teenager or live with a teenager, I don't know how this has crept into our vocabulary. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do it afterwards because it's part of the thing. So I have to say the thing still. But I think extra is kind of part of like a new way of saying like you're too much. Correct? Yes. I got the thumbs up from a teenager. All right. She's just an old mama, but she's still hip. And I actually already had asked your youth pastor if that was a thing. He's like, I think so. I don't know. Nobody really says it, but he doesn't say it because he's not young and hip. But Luke told me it was good, so I'm, go- I'm good with it. So extra, this is how people use it, young people. If you live with them or are one of them, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Extra, they're like, why you got to be so extra? Or like, oh, stop being so extra. Like, okay, young people are like, yes, this is it, right? Extra, kind of like this. It's almost like a negative slant on it. Yes, am I correct? I'm looking at two people right now for confirmation. Thumbs up. Yes, I'm killing it. All right. I love how all the teenagers are just right here. Got some on the outskirts, and so I can just look here. You're my, you're my audience right now. So I'm, I need you. So extra has this like negative connotation to it almost, where you're almost like, settle down, mom, or settle down, teacher, or friend. You're like a little bit annoying right now. So like, Stop being so extra. And so that, I guess, was in the back of my head. But when I think of extra or extravagant, I was thinking it's more like fancy, like royalty. I kind of get this picture of that. So I was thinking as positive um, extravagant. So I was confused about why we would use um, the term extravagant to describe love for one of our core values, especially if it were kind of like, We don't know if it's negative or positive. So, of course, I enlisted some help, some experts in the field, I would say. And so hopefully this will help you understand what extravagant really does mean. So let's take a look at the screen. What does extravagant mean? Extravagant means over the top. Over the top, grand and expensive. Oh, Oh my gosh. To be honest, I'm actually not sure what it means, but I'll I'll learn a little bit about that word so I know what it means. Ready? I think um, extravagant means really awesome and yeah, really awesome and great. What does extravagant mean? Um, I'm pretty sure it means like you're extravagant, you're happy or Excited, I think. Exquisite, I guess, would be a synonym for it. Antonym would be like, just really down low, I guess. Um, kind? I think it means thankful for what you have. I think extravagant means amazing. What does extravagant mean? 
Extravagant. Like, good, maybe? Like, like, not expecting good? Extravagant means big. Fancy. Um... Like, there's an extra marker? I don't know. Take a guess. Mm -hmm. What do you think extravagant means? Um, mad. Um, it means I don't know. You don't know? Can you take a guess? To be kind. I think it means lots of music. I think extravagant means like over the top. Yeah. Extravagant? Huge, doesn't it? Uh, great? I have no clue what that means. <laughs> right? We're good then, right? We got it? We know exactly what it means. And your green teeth will fly out of your mouth and we will understand completely what it means. So I'm even more confused than I was at the beginning. So then I have to... Um, default to the real expert, which is Merriam-Webster. Um, so here's what Miriam says extravagant means. Exceeding the limits of reason or necessity. Lacking in moderation, balance, and restraint. Extremely or excessively elaborate. Extremely or unreasonably high in price. Spending much more than necessary. Absurd. So some of them were on the right track, Right? And they're all adorable, so they have that, so they pass. So I'm still confused about our core value being extravagant love. So maybe I'm thinking extravagant has a bad definition. Maybe it's just misunderstood. Or maybe when we're talking about God's love, extravagant is actually a great word choice. So we could use lots of different stories from the Bible that would be good representations of extravagant love. We could look at the love of Jesus when Peter cuts off the guard's ear and then Jesus puts it back on, or when Mary pours out that really expensive perfume on Jesus' feet to show just how much she loves him. Or, of course, when God sent his son to die a painful and humiliating death on a cross because he loves us so much. These are all really great stories that represent extravagant love. But today, I want to look at a story um, in Luke called the prodigal son. It's found in Luke chapter 15, so you can go ahead and get your Bibles there if you'd like to. This, this story has been referred to as the heart of Luke's gospel, but I would also argue that it is the heart of our theology. I think it is the heart of the gospel. So let's look at it. It says, um, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger, one, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divide, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a dis distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomachs with the, stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The father said to him, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. And be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So here's the scene. We have this traditional Jewish family, a father and his two sons. And so by law, the older brother was entitled to two-thirds of the inheritance. And the younger son would get one-third. I'm the youngest. I hope my parents aren't listening. I don't like it, but that's just the way it was. So this inheritance would come when the father dies, or he could choose to like retire early and give that gift um, while he was still alive. And the gift would also mean that the kids would need to work the land. So that would all be pretty normal. But here we see the younger son approach the father and ask for an advance on his inheritance, right? He wants the money so he can move away from his father, venture out on his own. He wants to try this thing by himself. And so traditionally, this wouldn't go well. The response from the father would be unpleasant at best, but most likely he would be disowned. He would be driven out of the family, most likely with physical force. See, land was a big deal. In fact, the word property in Greek is actually bios, which means life. So quite literally, this family's life was wrapped up into the land that they have. 
Any wealth that the father had would have been found in his land. So in order to free up one-third of his wealth in order to give it to his son, he would have to have sold a lot of his land. He would literally have to be giving his life, his land, to give it to his son. This was a big deal because their identities were rooted in their land. Their status was rooted in their land. And the father was willing to give that up. I don't know about your father, but my father, at a request like that, would probably laugh at me, flat out tell me no, maybe even get angry with me. Or maybe he would give me what I wanted, but he'd definitely probably say, don't ask for anything else. Or don't come looking for help when you waste it all and it's all gone. And I would think that those are all pretty appropriate responses. After all, the son's request was extravagant. It was absurd. It exceeds the limits of reason. But that's not the reaction that we see in Luke. Instead, the father gave the son what he asked for. He wanted to get away. He wanted to figure out life on his own. He wanted to do as he chose. And the father says, okay. I'm sure the father's heart was broken. But he allows him to go anyway. The youngest son made an extravagant request. But the father's response was even more extravagant. This story is packed with lessons. I mean, we could take this and run with it for days. And so that's what you signed up for today. So hopefully you're comfortable. No, just kidding. Um, we could spend a ton of time here. It's, it's packed with good stuff, and we can learn so much. Again, I think this is theologically central to the gospel, this story. But unfortunately, we don't have all that time, so I will mostly want to focus in on the relationship between the younger brother and the father, but I do want to talk just a minute about the older brother in this story. So I'll be honest, I've heard this story a lot of times, and every time I hear it, I get angry with the older brother. Yes? Anybody with me? I just don't get it. How can you not be happy for your sibling? How can you not be happy that he's found, that he's returned home? I think he's super selfish. I think he's unforgiving. I think he's cold. And I don't like him. And I'm not like him. Until just the other day, I realized my older brotherness kind of creeping in on me. I was just talking this morning. I was just telling somebody, I don't like to drive in the winter. I don't like to drive, period. But I definitely don't like to drive in the winter, and I drive, like, really slow. So I was driving the other day on these awfully icy roads, and, you know, like a tortoise was, like, crawling next to me. And it was, it was a pretty annoying, the speed at which I was going, I'm sure, but it was, it was nasty outside. And so any opportunity that people had, to pass me, they took it. And at one point, I think it was like a logging truck. I don't know, it was giant. And it was like had this trailer swiveling in the back and it just took off and just passed me. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I may have said it out loud or maybe just in my head, but I'm pretty sure I said it out loud. Like, slow down, what are you doing? Why are you in such a hurry? I won't feel bad if you're in the ditch when I get a little bit further ahead of you, and I will pass you, and I will say, you got what was coming for you. You, you chose that. Slow down. 
I'm fine with you going in the ditch. You're going to learn your lesson. And then I realized, I'm an older brother. Like, that's me. I was reading Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, and I came across this quote that I wanted to share. He says, If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. If our churches aren't appealing to younger brothers, they must be more full of elder brothers than we'd like to think. was a reminder to me that we're all in need of God's grace and extravagant love, and yet it is such a challenge for us to extend that kind of grace and love to others. We expect it, we receive it, but it's hard for us to give it. Okay, so I took a moment to talk about the other brother. Let's get back to the younger brother. The text says, When he came to his senses, he decided to make his way back to his father and ask if he would take him back as a servant. And I think in this story, the younger brother wanders home, probably at the rate at which I'm driving. I'm betting he's slowly wandering home. And my guess is he's being cautious. He wasn't certain of his father's character. He wasn't certain of the reaction that he was going to get when he came back. He wasn't sure of what he could expect, but what he experienced was extravagant love. It was love that exceeded expectations. It was love that went beyond the limits of reason. It was absurd. As we listen and understand that story in the light of extravagant love of God, I'm reminded of the story of Ernie. Ernie is my husband's grandpa. Some of you have already heard a little bit about Ernie. Dan and I have been together for over 20 years, and I have probably said two sentences to Ernie in all of that time. I never really understood why Ernie didn't come around much. Um, All I know is that Dan's grandparents had gotten divorced um, at a young age. Dan was young. um, And so we kind of aligned with Grandma and didn't really have much to do with Grandpa. He'd come randomly around and give really weird gifts for Christmas and, um, you know, try to make make it in, you know, giant sweatshirts for, like, a little boy and just, like, wind-up flashlights and things like that. Um... So those were my experiences with Ernie. He was just like the random grandpa that showed up once in a while, and I never really said anything to him. But over the course of the past year, I've gotten to have several conversations with Ernie. Unfortunately, the reasoning behind these conversations was that Ernie was nearing the end of his life. He'd gotten news that the cancer had spread and that any treatment at this point wasn't going to or prolong life. So my mother-in-law called me one day and asked me if I would come visit her dad because he was beginning to have some of those questions about end-of-life kind of stuff. Immediately I said, yes, it will be a privilege. It will be my pleasure. 
And then I hung up the phone with her. And maybe what she didn't know, or probably she did know, because I'm not a very good fake, is I was terrified. Um, once I hung up the phone with her, I picked up the phone and called Pastor Aaron. And I was like, okay, so here's the deal. I need to go talk to Ernie, who is dying, and I don't know what to say. So what do I say? And like every good teacher, he didn't give me an answer. Right? Students, back at you. If teachers would just give us the answer, school would be like way easier. Right? Like life would be way easier. Emphatically, yes. Okay, back with you. Yes. He didn't give me an answer. He said, I'll pray for you. I trust that the Holy Spirit will be with you. All of these really great answers. But not helpful when I needed a script. I needed a plan. I needed to know exactly what to say. This wasn't exactly what I was looking for. But on the day that we had arranged to meet, I drove to Dan's aunt's house where Ernie was staying. And I drove into the driveway and I parked the car. And I could feel this strange sense of peace take over. I'm not going to say that I was comfortable, but I could breathe. So that was a good sign. I was feeling empowered. I was feeling not alone. I felt like I could have this conversation. Now remember, I had said two things to Ernie ever in my whole history with him. So I really was expecting this awkward like first date kind of thing. Like, hey, Ernie, nice to meet you. Like we both know of each other, but we've never talked to each other really. Those kind of things. And to be honest, it was really quite opposite of that. We got settled right in. I asked Lots of questions, because if you've ever been in a conversation with me, it probably seems more like an interrogation than it does a conversation, because I just like to find out things about people. And he played right along. He loved to tell things about himself as well. So it worked out really well. So the stage in which Ernie was in was kind of like the reflective stage, the coulda, shoulda, woulda of his life. And so this was kind of the first conversation told me about his childhood, didn't have a lot growing up. Probably like a lot of kids that in that time, he quit high school early in 10th grade. He quit school to get a job so that he could provide for his family. He started to work at Teledyne Continental Motors, talked about his love for singing karaoke and riding snowmobiles and motorbikes. He shared stories about his kids and fond memories he had of their childhood. But mostly, he talked about the parts of his life that he had deep regret. By the time Ernie was 18, he was married. He was drafted into the military, sent off to war where he served for two years. He came back and served 10 years in the National Guard. He continued to work for Teledyne, also served as a police officer for the Fruitport Police Department. He took his jobs very seriously. He was always looking for ways to provide for his family, which rightfully so, he had seven kids and a wife. And I think what started with good intentions with Ernie to provide for his family, to give his kids a childhood that he did not have, kind of grew into a problem. More responsibility led to more stress, more status at work led to more opportunities to travel, more travel meant more time away from home. Tension at home drove him from home. 
He spent more time at the local establishments than he did home. He was a good-looking guy, got some attention. That attention distracted him from other things that should have been a priority. And things started to spiral a little bit as far as his family was concerned. Ernie made plenty of mistakes. He wasn't a perfect husband, and he wasn't a perfect father. Then Ernie shared this story with me. He told me about the time when he was 17 years old and he was sitting in a church service much like this. He sat there the entire time that the pastor was preaching and he said he felt something different and he just couldn't quite put his finger on it. But at the end of the service, the pastor made an offer to come to go to the front of the church and to pray. And He said, I felt so strongly in my heart that I needed to go, but I just didn't have the courage. He waited and waited for people to start moving, but nobody got up. He told me, I know that if just one person would have done that, I would have been there, and it would have changed my life. I was too scared to do it without someone else doing it first. More than 70 years after that experience, Ernie could pinpoint a moment in his life that if he would have acted on it, could have changed his whole life. And not only that, it could have changed the trajectory for his whole family, for his kids, for his grandkids. Now, we don't know what else could have happened along his path, his journey, but he cites that moment 70 years later as one that could have changed his life. And as Ernie sat in his chair and I sat on the floor in front of him, I reached up and I grabbed his hand and I said, you might have missed that opportunity when you were 17, but you have the same opportunity at 88. And he kind of laughed at me. And he said, I think I've made too many mistakes, Holly. I mean, I've tried to read my Bible and it just sits there and collects dust mostly. I pray Sometimes, but I mostly feel selfish when I pray because I pray for myself. Instead, I could have been praying for our world or my kids or my family. But I reminded him that the love of our father is not like the love of any other father or person we've ever known. Because our father has the capacity to forgive and to love in a way that we don't even fully grasp. Because we have a father who loves us so extravagantly, it's absurd. It exceeds the limits of reason. And because of that, we sometimes miss it because we think we're too far gone. We've messed up too much. It's too late. But it's not. So right there, I was sitting on the floor and Ernie was in his chair. I asked him if he'd like to pray. He was timid. (laughs) He said, I'm going to need your help. So I grabbed his hand a little bit tighter and I cleared my throat, got my tissues out because naturally I was already blubbering. And when I was just about to get the first word out of my prayer, Ernie just took over. You could tell he had some stuff to say. He had some things to get off his chest and he prayed 
And he thanked God for his family. He thanked God for his kids who were taking care of him at the end of his life when he didn't take care of them. For their forgiveness, even though he didn't deserve it. And then he asked God for forgiveness. He told God that with all the days he had left to live, he wanted to live them for him. And when he finished, he said, I guess I didn't need you after all. (laughs) You could see the newness in him. I can't explain it. He was a sick, dying man. But somehow, you could see life. And with with the tears just streaming down his face and his voice cracking, he said, at 88, I'm a new creation. I can't believe at 88 I can be new. This was a conversation that not only changed Ernie's life, but it changed mine as well. Because the love of our Father does seem absurd, maybe even reckless. Reckless to the point where there's no caution. There's no holding back. It goes beyond logic or reason. It's the love that keeps reaching out, scanning and searching for children who can welcome home when they're ready. And this grace and love is our greatest hope. God's reckless grace His extravagant love is our greatest hope. I was able to visit with Ernie a few more times after our initial conversation. One was to celebrate his 89th birthday, which he was was bumming about because he really, his goal was to make it to 90. And I said, dude, you lived through 2020. I think you can count that as two years. You're good. I said, that's close enough. And the other was when he started to decline pretty quickly. My mother-in-law again called and asked if I could come visit him because he just needed to chat a little bit more. And so I went and I was happy to visit. But at the same time, I just kept wondering, how can I get Ernie to understand that he doesn't need to talk to me anymore? He is set free. He can be assured that he is loved and that he is forgiven. He doesn't need me to tell him that again. But why is it so hard to grasp? Because this is how completely absurd our Father's love is. It's so hard to wrap our minds around the depth and the fullness of his love. In this story, the prodigal son, Jesus is trying to get us to understand the Father's love is free. The son didn't even have to clean up his life or show evidence that he had a changed heart. He didn't even have to give a speech of repentance first. All he did is take a step in the direction of the father. And the father hiked up his robe and went sprinting after him. It wasn't even a meet me in the middle kind of thing. It was just look in my direction and I'll be there. A few days later, I got a call that it wouldn't be long. I took off immediately. And I set off to see Ernie. I arrived just a few minutes after he took his final breath. I missed it. 
I would have loved to say goodbye, to hug him, to pray with him, to thank him. Because I will forever be grateful for that time with Ernie. Because it was the time that I got to experience and encounter, be a first-hand witness to the extravagant love of our Father. It's like anything I've ever been a part of before. A son happens to be 88 years old, 89. Felt like he was too far gone. He's too old, too ashamed. He made too many mistakes. He had wandered way too far off the path. He was too late. But I saw him be welcomed back home. See, our father is in the business of finding. So if you think you're too far off the path, if you're lost and you don't know how to get your, find your way back, all you have to do is simply turn and look in the direction of the Father because I can guarantee his eyes are already on you. He already knows where you're at. And he's just waiting for you to look in his direction. There are lots of ways we could describe God's love for his people. And I think we picked a good extravagant. It's absurd. It exceeds the limits of reason. So I'll ask these questions. Have you received God's extravagant love? Do you know that you are loved and celebrated in a way that is absurd? Because if you haven't, whether you're eight or 88, or below, or between, or above, it's not too late to experience the extravagant love of our Father. Come on home. And two, do you give God's extravagant love? Are there ways in which the older brother creeps in on your life and you are reluctant to give do you forgive and do you extend grace and love in a way that exceeds the limits of reason? Because when you have received the extravagant love of God, then our role is to give it away and spread it around. To be part of the Welcome Home Committee, we need to get our celebration on and we need to join the party. So let's start inviting people to it. Let's love people extravagantly. Will you pray with me? God, how overwhelming it is the way that you love us. How you constantly are there to bring us back into the fold when we lose our way. The only thing that gets in our way is us. We know that you are searching and waiting patiently for our return, and all we have to do is simply look in your direction, and you are ready to run and lift us up and catch us and re reunite us to the family. God, we don't understand your love. It is so absurd. It is so extravagant. It goes beyond the limits of reason, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. 
But God, we know that it's true. Would you help us to cling to that in the moments where we think we're too far gone, in the moments where we think other people are too far gone? God, would you help us to be givers of your extravagant love? Would you help us to reflect your love everywhere that we go? Would you help our older brother moments to be less and less? Would you help us to understand and notice when we're acting a little bit um, selfish and stingy with the grace that isn't ours to give in the first place? God, would you help us to be a little bit more like the younger brother and just trust that if and when we get off the path, we know that you are there to love us and welcome us back. And we're thankful for this news today and this promise of your love. You are a good, good father. And we love you. In your son's name, amen.